Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy at Credit Sites. And today I'm joined again by Pat Luby, our head of municipal strategy. If you haven't listened to our podcast that we recorded a few weeks ago on the outlook for munis, go back and take a listen to that one. I learned a lot and I think it had some great recommendations for setting up in the fall and beyond. Pat also moonlights as our resident expert on all things fund flows, and this includes which have grown to be a pretty meaningful part of the fixed income market over the past decade. Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Woody. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about the mutual funds and ETFs today. Me too. They really matter, especially in terms of making spreads move to kind of all-time tight levels. So, Pat, let's take a step back. You've been in the business of bonds for a while now. And in addition to analyzing the muni bond market, you've spent a lot of time and energy on mutual funds and ETFs. And I mean a lot of time and energy. Why? Why are you doing this? With the background in bonds, of course, everybody watches for the weekly fund flows. What's going on with fund flows? And that's not a new phenomenon. That's been going on for years and years and years. And really, I think folks watch it as an indicator of demand. What's going on with buyers? Are they buying? But I realize when you look at just the gross number or really the net number, because that's the number we get every week is the, the net fund flows, you really miss a lot of nuance of demand and what's going on. And then as ETFs became more and more influential in the fixed income market, there's a whole additional category of data and insight that you can get from the ETFs that you can't get from the mutual funds. And I wanted to understand what can we learn from what's going on with the ETFs that would be helpful to the participant in the market for individual bonds. One of the interesting things I discovered is when you go and you speak to the ETF people, a lot of them grew up in the equity side of the business. They don't necessarily understand bond market dynamics and fixed income portfolio strategies and tactics. They don't necessarily know how to speak bond about the fixed income ETFs. And a lot of the bond people don't understand how to speak ETF to the ETF people. And so, yes, yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing research, a lot of reading, a lot of conversations. I've been on the, the ETF show circuit, both as a listener and also as a speaker to pick up expertise. And so the bottom line is now I've cultivated a lot of understanding about the ETFs and can help our clients and our readers understand what's going on with the ETF market that they need to know about. And I think it's really important, whether or not you're active in the ETF market, to be paying attention to what is going on with ETFs. 
Yeah, I think that that's a great point. I used to sit on a trading desk in my former career, and it was a year in which ETFs were actually growing pretty significantly. And we saw firsthand how ETF activity was influencing cash bond trading activity. And that has some pretty significant ramifications for all of our investors. But first, I want to dig in a little bit on the differences between mutual funds and ETFs, because a lot of people kind of refer to both of them as the retail product. But there are some pretty big nuances across mutual funds and ETFs. So who owns mutual funds and who uses ETFs? So that's one of the fundamental questions. Mutual funds really are a retail product. They're owned primarily by individual investors. More than half of mutual funds are owned in retirement accounts. So obviously municipal bond mutual funds would not be owned in a retirement account. But when you're looking at flows in and out of IG corporate bond mutual funds and high yield corporate bond funds, they're more than likely being held in a retirement account. Those of us who are familiar with you know saving for our own 401ks, there's frequently not a lot of selection for investors and retirement accumulation accounts. And so those mutual fund selections tend to be kind of narrow for investors. They don't have a lot of flexibility to leave the mutual fund selections and go into the bond individual market or into ETFs. So it's somewhat, not totally, but somewhat of a closed ecosystem devoted and delivered primarily to individual investors. Now in the ETFs, of course, they trade on the exchange. It's easy to take a ticker and go on to your online brokerage account. So it's easy for individual investors to execute and have access to the ETF market, but they're not the only ones. Uh, registered investment advisors who are charging a fee for advice, they love ETFs because of the low cost. They love it because of the tax efficiency, and it's much easier for them to select uh, a sector or an asset class ETF than to worry about trying to get into the security selection decisions. So in the ETFs, not only are there individual investors, but there's RIAs, wealth managers, family offices, multifamily offices, even SMA managers are now frequently writing investment policy to allow the use of ETFs pending deployment of cash into a long-term position in a strategy. And of course, there's also other investors, insurance companies are, are one type that come to mind that maintain a liquidity sleeve in their bond portfolio. And so they are very active and big holders of the largest and most actively traded ETFs in our part of the world. LQD for IG corporates, HYG and the high yield corporates, and MUB and the municipals. Those are three widely held ETFs that are used frequently by institutional investors for tactical exposure, getting in and out or having access to exchange traded liquidity in the marketplace. So with the ETF flows, can behave differently than what we see from mutual fund flows. And when we see mutual fund inflows or outflows, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should be seeing, you know, similar flows in ETFs. And so we think, you know, in contrast to a lot of the street, we always talk about ETF flows separately from mutual fund flows, because we do want to differentiate between what's the retail investor marketplace doing and what's going on with the other investors in the marketplace. That's a great overview. And I think it's so important to keep in mind just the difference in that ownership base with ETFs really being 
much more an institutional or, or quasi-institutional sleeve of ownership in the bond market than I think a lot of people give them credit for. So, Pat, what's the future of mutual funds and ETFs? We've seen amazing growth on ETFs. You know, you can have an ETF for pretty much anything. Now, it feels like, where are we going from here? You know, it, I have a different answer now than if you had asked me five years ago. I think like a lot of the street and a lot of the industry, five years ago, I was, I think I was of the opinion that, you know, mutual funds were, were destined for obsolescence, but they have proved that they're not obsolete. They continue to attract dollars. There's a tremendous amount of infrastructure around the mutual fund business. They are extremely popular with individual investors. They're integrated into retail investor model portfolio platforms. The connectivity between mutual fund providers and brokerage firms and wealth management firms provides a tremendous amount of support, but also a pretty wide moat against ETFs getting into that business. Um, but I do think that, that we're going to continue to see a generational shift of increasing use of ETFs. It's easy to plug and play an ETF into a, a model portfolio. I think we're seeing broader and wider adoption of that. It's also much easier to bring a new ETF strategy to market. The barriers to entry are not as high. Um, it's super, super competitive though. Just in the mini space, for example, there's over 500 municipal bond mutual funds. Right now there's 83 muni ETFs. Uh, do we need 500 muni ETFs? No, we don't. Do we need more than 83? I, I can make an argument that yes, there is a, an appetite and a need for more than 83 ETFs, but it takes a while to get there. There needs to be sufficient assets under management to justify the cost of doing it. But the, as I said, the barriers to entry are much lower and you can launch an ETF and see if it resonates with investors. And if it doesn't, then you can collapse it and move on to the next thing. Moving on to the next thing, always how it works in, in our world. Pat, do you have a favorite ETF? Um, I don't know that I have a favorite ETF. I mean, the ones that I watch the most are MUB, uh, VTEB, and a couple of the other munis because I'm in munis. But one that I think is really fascinating and is overlooked by a lot of the market, especially now with short rates. So, you know, the short end of the media curve inverted PVI, which is the, an Invesco ETF that invests only in municipal variable rate demand obligations. So muni VRDOs are issued in multiples of 100,000. They typically pay a tax exempt dividend that's higher than money market funds because this is what the money market funds are buying. But because they're issued in denominations of 100, most retail investors, retail advisors don't have easy access to VRDOs. And this is an ETF that provides that access to the marketplace, PVI. And because I've been a proponent of using ETFs as a tactical placekeeper for those investors who are looking to put money to work in the market, but they can't find the right bond, especially right now where yields have really jumped high, I would hate to think that somebody is going to miss locking in current yields, you know, present day yields because they can't find the right bond using an ETF is a great way to do that. That's a great one. So let's talk a little bit more around the data. What data do you look at for mutual funds? Let's start there. So mutual funds, um, right? So we, we're, we're accustomed to hearing about net mutual fund flows. Well, net flows means that there's also gross flows and the gross flow data is harder to come by, but ICI does publish gross flow data on a monthly basis. 
So let's take a look at IG mutual funds. We just got the data last week for August flows for the IG mutual funds. Net flows for August plus 552 million. That sounds pretty anemic. Uh, 552 million in that marketplace, very anemic. It sounds like there's not a lot of demand. However, intermediate investment grade corporate bond funds pulled in to over 2 billion in August. Long-term IG funds pulled in uh, 856 million, so almost a billion. Multi-term IG funds, so it, it gives the portfolio manager flexibility to go where they want. They pulled in 4.9 billion in August. If you're looking only at the 552 million, you're missing the nuance of what's going on. So multi-terms, almost 5 billion in, in inflows. So who lost? Short-term funds. Short-term IG funds lost 4.4 billion in August. Ultra short-term funds lost 1.4. What, what's going on there? Well, that makes sense to me. You know, the inverted curve, it's at some point, um, folks should be worried about missing the boat of locking in longer-term yields. I, I'm a big proponent of managing reinvestment risk. And if you stay too short for too long, no matter how fat and juicy an inverted yield curve might be, at some point, you're going to expose yourself to too much reinvestment risk. I think that's what we're seeing. Money flowing out of short-term and ultra-short IG funds and going out longer-term. Net flows don't reveal that. You have to look at the gross flows. That is a great point. And, you know, one of the top questions that I'm getting from clients is, when do we start extending duration? And I think that if you look at these mutual fund flows in August and see, oh, actually, the, you know, kind of everyday retail investor has started extending duration, perhaps you should be watching that pretty closely. And so analyzing those fund flows at the market segment level are really important. Now, one thing that I think confuses a lot of people is there are a lot of different mutual fund data sources. You know, we see on Bloomberg every Thursday, Lipper fund flows are reported as XYZ. And then there's also EPFR and you mentioned ICI. And sometimes these data sources have materially different numbers in terms of their weekly fund flow report. Can you just talk a little bit about the differences and how people should be thinking about them? Yes. Well, I think they're all excellent sources of data. They've all got really robust methodologies that they use, but they're different from each other. You know, let's start with Lipper and EPFR. They're going to look at similar universes, but they may have slightly different definitions of which fund goes in which bucket. I don't know specifically, but, you know, if there's a group of funds that f fall into intermediate with Lipper, but if a different provider doesn't have the exact same bucket, where are they going to allocate them? So I think the, the nuance flows are going to be subject to the definition. Uh, the timing of the data and exactly how they're parsing it may be slightly different. So I tend to not worry too much about the week-to-week -week differences between any of the three providers. Over the longer haul, they get it right. What I find really helpful about Lipper and for EPFR, super timely. They do a great job. They get a number out. Is it precise? I don't know. Is it subject to revision? Yes, it is. Is it going to change next week? Possibly. But I think it's a really good directional indicator of what the heck is going on in the market. You know, where's money flowing? It's not very often that the revisions are really different in scale, but it could be. But I think they're really helpful indicators of broad indicators of sentiment. 
The ICI data is not as timely. So Lipper and EPFR come out late on Thursday, Eastern time as of the prior day. So the Wednesday before ICI data comes out the following Wednesday. It's certainly not as timely, but ICI, which is the trade group owned by the asset managers or, you know, funded by the asset managers, ICI conducts a weekly market-wide survey. So their data is really good. They're also subject to revision though. So they do revise their weekly data and they, they put out uh, monthly data as well. ICI's data also is used by the Federal Reserve for their quarterly flow of funds data, which we publish and rely on a lot. So we're probably unique on the street. We use a combination of Lipper, EPFR, ICI, and also the Bloomberg data for ETFs. And we try to normalize all the data and, and try to make sense of it. But the week-to-week -week data, it is noisy. But over the long haul, I think all of the providers do an awesome job and they do a great job of getting data out. And so then for ETFs, where do we find that data? And is it as timely as mutual fund data? Um, I love the ETF data because it's near real time. I mean, you could sit in front of your Bloomberg if you want to and, and look tick by tick to see what the ETFs are doing. But if you're trying to trade bonds, if you're trying to build a portfolio, if you're trying to put orders in on a new issue and, and deal with allocations, you don't really have time for that necessarily. But at the end of the day or the next morning, you can see, well, well, what happened yesterday? And you don't have to wait until the end of the week. You don't have to wait until Thursday to see what's going on with ETFs. Today is a great example. You know, we put out the, the weekly chart of the day on Thursdays and we take a, a close look at what happened with ETFs. HYG and, and high yield ETFs in particular, they, over the last four trading days, they traded more turnover. The market value of high yield ETFs traded each of the last four days exceeded the par value of high yield bonds traded on trace. And if you had to wait until Thursday to see that those numbers, you've missed the boat. And so those are really interesting data points. And a big part of the difference between ETFs and mutual funds too is ETFs have primary market activity and secondary market trading activity. So when we talk about changes in the asset under management or the, you know, the, the weekly changes and the net flows in ETFs, that's really a reference to the number of shares outstanding, which is a, a share creation. It's like uh, an issue of bonds, except it's an issue of shares from this exchange traded fund. And so shares are created and redeemed in the primary market. When an investor goes to buy shares, they're actually executing that trade in the secondary market. When there's enough buying going on that the, the float has declined, the authorized participants will go to the sponsor and say, hey, we need more shares. Where the, the float has declined, we need more shares. And the inverse happens also. So we watch both the secondary market turnover. We don't watch the share volume. We watch the turnover. And I'll talk about that in a sec. And also the primary market activity. The primary market activity is the asset flows. Now, ETFs all trade at different prices. If you're looking at like if you're going to Bloomberg or, you know, whatever you're using and you pull up the share volume in munis, for example, if there's a similar number of shares of VTEB and MUB that trade, you might think if you're looking at shares traded, oh, the, you know, similar volume. Well, MUB has a dollar price that's about twice what VTEB is. So to normalize that and also to get a better comparison with par amounts of bonds traded over the counter in our markets, look at turnover, which is the market value traded. And that will give you a good consistent measure across ETFs in a sector. You know, how did all the IG ETFs, what did the volumes look like 
if you look at share count, it's impossible to reconcile that in your own head, or at least I am. Uh, but the, but the turn, looking at turnover makes that easier. So you mentioned authorized participants. Can you just give a little explanation of who, who's an authorized participant? What, what are they? What's their job? Why, why are they involved in ETFs? So the authorized participant is a trading firm that has an agreement with the ETF sponsor. And they're the only ones to actually trade or exchange securities with the sponsor. So if I'm an authorized participant, I'm going to be making a market in the ETF shares, but because I may also be charged with creating new shares and facilitating the creation of new shares or redeeming old shares and putting bonds back out into the market, that gives me a really strong incentive to have a really sharp pencil on what every single QCIP in that ETF is worth. And so it's not unusual for the authorized participants to be making a market not only in the shares, but also in the bonds as well. One thing that's notable is QCIPs that are in the highly traded ETFs are more liquid than QCIPs that are not. And when a QCIP leaves an ETF, liquidity goes with it. There's a noticeable decline in liquidity. There's academic studies that have looked at that question. But the authorized participants are the only ones who face off with the, uh, the ETF sponsor. So if they have a client who wants to get a really large block size trade done either to buy the ETF shares or to redeem ETF shares through the capital markets desk, they would face off with ultimately with an authorized participant who then works with the sponsor to get that block of shares created that they can then deliver out to the buyer or to redeem shares and be able to, you know, return cash or bonds to whoever is redeeming the shares. That's super helpful. And I know that when I was on the high yield trading desk, we would walk in every morning and check ETFs and AVs, try and figure out, all right, are ETFs buying today? Or are they selling today? And it really, you know, that combined with what has Asia done overnight would very much set the tone for at least kind of the morning trading hours. I think that's a great point. And if you think back to the turmoil in the markets in March of 2020, when the wheels were coming off the market, we're all trying to figure out what the heck is going on with COVID. And the high yield market in particular, there is a huge disconnect between where the ETFs were trading and the NA of these ETFs. And there was a lot of commentary, well, the ETFs must be broken. It may be an imperfect instrument. And the, the reality is the ETFs were trading hundreds of thousands, if not millions of shares traded per day. And the top 10 QCIPs and a lot of these ETFs, they weren't really trading. There's much better trade information, clearing information, market intelligence coming from where are the ETF shares clearing the market. And so watching the difference between where the ETFs were clearing the market and what the NAV was really told you more about how little the underlying bonds were trading and how difficult that made it for the pricing services to keep up with what's really going on in the market. Yeah. And we have to remember that the Fed started buying high yield ETFs right in April of 2020. So you can definitely see the connection between actual executable liquidity within the ETFs versus the cash bond market, especially in these periods of kind of extreme volatility as a whole. 
So we kind of started to touch on this, but there are a number of bond market participants who have been very skeptical of ETFs and especially the liquidity around ETFs. What do you think, Pat? You're an expert. Are ETFs good for bond market liquidity or are they bad for bond market liquidity? Well, th- yeah, there's a couple of examples that I point to. That one we just talked about from March of 2020 is is a really good one because investors were able to easily get out quickly from the ETFs. They may not have liked the price, but there was liquidity in the ETFs and lots of market makers actively bidding and, and offering ETFs when the market for the individual bonds was definitely all over the map. One of the most interesting days, I think, was Veterans Day of 2016. Veterans Day is one of the the two days of the year when bonds are closed and stocks are open. And that year, it fell on the Friday after Trump was elected president. And if you recall, the markets were going crazy. But it's Friday, it's Veterans Day. Bonds told stocks, we're out of here, we'll catch you on Monday. The fixed income ETFs continued to trade on Friday, November 16th, 2016. The big ETFs actually had more turnover on that day than they had on the average day prior to the election. How is that possible? It's possible because there's market participants willing to put capital at risk, buying and selling in the ETF market. And ETFs are easier to hedge, by the way, than the bond market. That's why if you look at the weekly data from the New York Fed, there's plenty of capital pledged provided to the equity market, which includes the traders who are carrying fixed income ETFs on the balance sheet. So it's easier for them to hedge that risk than it is to be trading in in the bonds. So that's another example I think is really interesting. And another great example is yesterday. High yield ETFs traded two and a half times the notional volume that the high yield bond market did. And so if somebody wants to get out, they don't need to go to the bond market and stress the traders who might already be loaded with a bunch of QSIPs that they're having difficulty moving. They go to the equity market and they sell the ETF and HYG, LQD, and to a very small extent, MUB, these three largest bellwethers in each of their markets, there's also options on those. HYG, especially very large liquid options market. So we also watch the open put interest on HYG as indicative. So almost don't even need to use the ETF. You could use the options if you're looking to express a view. Pat, that is super helpful. Do you have any last words of wisdom on ETFs, mutual funds, fund flows? What's something that our listeners should keep in mind? I think even for those investors who are not using ETFs, the growth of ETF and the need for the authorized participants and the market makers to to be able to quickly trade the QSIPs and the ETFs is the force that's transforming the plumbing of the bond markets. The growth of electronic trading, the growth of basket trading, the growth of intraday pricing, the improved quality of intraday pricing, pre-trade pricing algorithms, trading algorithms, all of these are possible because of the volume of business that's being transacted in the fixed income ETFs. All of us and all of our clients benefit from that increased efficiency in the marketplace. So even if you're not using ETFs, it's worth paying attention to. The final point, one of the arguments I make in favor of in bond market participants using ETFs is it's very difficult to manage liquidity risk in a portfolio. One of the few ways that you can do that is to diversify your sources of liquidity. I'm a big proponent of having a liquidity sleeve in a bond market portfolio. That means you need to go to the, the largest, most liquid ETFs, 
it's typically then going to be a core holding, but it also should free up some of the portfolio out of the core holdings into something where you can you know, seek out a little bit more spread and yield. Pat, that was great. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about mutual funds and ETFs. If anyone has any follow-up questions for me or Pat, please feel free to reach out to us using that Ask an Analyst feature on the Credit Sites website or by going to creditsites.com to trial a subscription. We have a very regular product focused on both corporate and muni ETFs that has a lot of great information on a monthly and quarterly basis, along with our weekly fund flow data that Pat puts together for us. Pat, thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Winnie. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.